Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is episode three of the More Than Just Code podcast. Today's topic, we reveal just how much it really costs to make an app. We talk about the upcoming game from the creator of Flappy Bird. We discuss Tom Hanks throwing his hat into the ring as an app creator. And we explore the technical and business significance of iOS 8's new size classes feature. Hey everybody, welcome to episode three of the More Than Just Code podcast, where we talk about things that are relevant to developers running small businesses or trying to make themselves famous on the App Store. Um, this week again, we have Aaron Bay from Whitby, Ontario. Hello. And we have Jaime Lopez from Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And we have Mark Rubin from San Jose, California. Hi there. So next week, we'll be uh, he heading down to 360i Dev in Denver for the conference on, for iOS development. And the three of us are going to be down there. So we're going to try and record our podcast while we're at the uh, conference, which should be interesting, since I think it may be the conflict with the Night of Meat. Anything you're interested in seeing down at 360i Dev or talk, or talk you want to go to? This is my first time going, so I'm just pretty excited to see what it's all about and see what's going on. Right, and hang out with other developers and stuff like that? Yep. What did you think of the, the one day you, you snuck into the WWDC? Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, <laughs> <but>. <laughs> no, it was great. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, it, it definitely much more uh, immersive to be there than to watch the videos on online, for yeah. sure. That's kind of my, my opinion about these things in general. I mean, um, I, I've, you know, I, I missed not being able to go to the, across the street to the uh, AltConf. Um, I watched some of the videos there, but yeah, it wasn't nearly the same kind of uh, vibe as actually being in there, talking to guys in line, you know, and, uh, and seeing the reaction of people emotionally from when things are being presented to them, right? So, you know, it sounds a bit canned on, on, uh, on the recordings when you, when you listen to the applause afterwards. Yeah, so one of the topics that, uh, that, that comes up quickly when we're out, you know, talking to clients and trying to build apps, it always comes down to how much does it cost to build an app, right? 
And I get asked that question a lot, and, and I have a couple of boilerplate answers that I give people um, just to let them know there is a minimum threshold. But, uh, Jaime, you, do, you stumbled across or you read a, an article on uh, online about uh, that you saw about how much that costs. Do you want to jump in there? Yeah, this is a, a particular link uh, from uh, SFCD. I, I have to admit I have not uh, seen this blog before. Okay. But they had a pretty good breakdown of sort of the thought that went into it. You know, if you had a simple app that doesn't really sync with anything, um, I think they, they choose a simple notes application. And then they give a, a certain breakdown of all the, the people hours or, or people days that it would take to do and, and assuming a certain dollar per hour. And then they also have, a, okay, well, now if it needs to sync and if we have continuing support, what does that cost? And I think the the costs would really surprise some people. Um, it's certainly the, the average person on the street would be surprised, but I think even some app developers might be a little surprised if they really, really sat down and thought about all of this. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I, I do... I do, like I said, my, even my boilerplate numbers are, are lower than, than what these guys were saying, even for like a minimal app. I mean, they, they sort of, their threshold was, they figured a simple app is like 25 days worth of work, but I think maybe they were they talking eight hour days. They must've been because they came up with $20,000, you know, for, for an entry level. Um, I think, you know, there are developers out there charging way less than that. What are the prices like down in the San Francisco Bay Area? Are they are high or low? What do you think they are, Mark? Well, I think they're pretty comparable to this. Uh, I, I do agree that the average person on the street who gets an idea for an app is, is thinking it's probably you know a couple thousand bucks, and they're yeah. pretty shocked when they when they hear the reality. Uh, but the uh, but I think the real prices are, are pretty close to what the website is saying. Uh, I, I think we're victims of of uh, some pretty cheap rates advertised on, you know, places like, you know, Elance and whatnot. I mean, you can see some, you know, people charging $10 an hour or, and, and, uh, that, that unfortunately sets the, sets the bar kind of low. Yeah. I saw some, some, uh, on fiverr.com saying they could do an app for five bucks, which I just thought was common. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but they're like, they're talking about taking a web blog and just putting a wrapper on it and throwing it up on the app store, which probably wouldn't get approved anyway. So, uh, I wouldn't be so sure of that. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I've seen, I've seen, I've actually seen some examples like firsthand where an app did get approved and then the same app later on in another guise didn't get approved by Apple. So, and it literally was a web view in with a button, uh, like an icon on the desktop and a web view behind it. Well, that's, that's good fortune then, uh, for us. Uh, th- this, this column that, that Jaime has found is really great. Uh, there's another one that, uh, Craig Hockenberry, uh, the developer of Twitterific, uh, mm-hmm. among other things, of the Icon Factory. Uh, four years ago now, I'm looking at this uh, Stack Overflow uh, answer that he gave back in 2010, where someone asked, how much does it cost to develop an app? Right. And he gave a very similar answer. He's like looking at what it costs to develop Twitterific. And he's like, I honestly don't know how long it took. But it was a lot, a very, an awful lot. And right, yeah, yeah. their rate for clients is 150 an hour, uh, given the number of hours that he's estimating, about 1100 uh, It's $165,000 just for the new code. Uh, total development cost um, uh, using existing code, and he figures it'll be about 200 k to develop a Twitterific. The thing that I think about when, when you talk about developer costs um, is that it's different depending on who's doing the development. Um, I think the SFCD... Uh, blog article and um, Craig Hockenberry assumes a team of developers uh, working right. on an app, and it's presumably something of some substance as well. 
by the time the SFCD column is done, they're talking about uh, not just a node app, but a social node app that does all kinds of different things, printing, sharing, full featured node app, like maybe a Vesper. I just don't see that um, every app is going to be like that. So while potential clients are going to be victims of wishful thinking, uh, because of course what they want is simple. <laughs> it always yeah. is. Um, so what they're looking at here though, um, is maybe a case where it could be simpler, where it may cost less. Um, you know, uh, Tim, I think you can agree with this. Uh, I've never made $200,000 building an app for anyone. Um, (laughs) I I do know that like, I've never built an app by myself. I mean, I, every app and and I don't think anybody, well, reasonably, I don't think anybody can because, you know, it takes conceptual ideas. It takes, you know, coding, heavy lifting. Um, Mark does a lot of my heavy lifting for me from time to time and design. Right. And so most of our biggest apps that have done well was built by a team of people uh, almost uh, at some points, you know, 10 people because we had creative directors and we had blog writers. We had an editor at one point, you know, we've had a number of people besides just the brain trust, you know, we had junior coders and senior coders, you know, and then you have to get onto the whole marketing thing. And I could easily see somebody spending, you know, a quarter of a million, half a million to build a, a decent app. Right. Um, but even a small app that, you know, when you look at the man hours that go into a small app, like some of the small apps that I've built for fun, um, they weren't, they, they did take quite a bit of time and, you know, it required, you know, some, some good looking artwork. And, you know, the trouble is we all sort of, as developers, I think, you know, we're doing something we're really good at that seems to come easy to us. And therefore we undervalue what that effort is worth to the person who can't build an app. Right. So it is a bit insulting to, to sort of see people lowballing the whole process. But interestingly enough, though, um, I've sort of I've saw another uh, post I was telling Jaime before we started tonight that where the, the about how to build an app topic came up and it sort of came around to the same kind of numbers. But interestingly, I've also found and I'm going to put it in the show notes. Um, there literally is a website called how much to make an app dot com. And what they've done is they've put together uh, a widget where basically you choose your options from a menu and depending on what you choose, like, you know, whether it's going to have syncing or going to have a user login, whether it's going to have in-app purchase, uh, then it basically builds you out a price for building an app. And, and they go, I mean, the smallest app I think was uh, $5,000, surprisingly, all the way up to 37000 So. You know, and I'm a bit nervous about even even the five thousand dollar price mark. You know, um, for a low low end app. What do you what do you think about that, Aaron or Mark? Well, yeah, the, you mean five thousand sounds low. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, unless, unless it's a really simple, you know, one one or two screens and and no, you know, no server component or anything. I mean, it have to be really really a simple app. Yeah, and and like and, yeah, no design as well. Yeah, right. As it happens, I did that about uh, five or six months ago. Uh, I had a client who came to me and said, um, I need a prototype app built in, um, I think I had a week and a half. Right. And it was completely on device, no server component, nothing too fancy, SQLite, a little bit of logic and some playing around in the storyboard uh, to bang this thing together. And that was $5,000. I only agreed because it was so short, a timeline. Um, Because otherwise, if it had dragged out, I don't think it would have been worthwhile. That's the reality of where, where, you know, being a developer is going is that I don't, you know, you're not really going to have success on, on the app store. So those of us who have the skills and there's the demand is out there. 
Um, I heard today that it's a four to one demand down in, in the Bay Area for developers versus what's available, right? Oh, how uh, I could talk about that. <laughs> could you? What would you like to say about that and oh. being up here in Toronto and, and where, yeah. where it's a little different? Go ahead. It, it is totally different. Um, well, one, one of the drums that I um, habitually bang on is the fact that I'm a remote worker. Okay. Um, I, I can't, uh, you know, for reasons of, of geography really. And, and my family life, I cannot commute into the big city, uh, to work a nine to five job in an office. Um, it's just not something that's, that's feasible for me. For those who don't know or don't care, I live about uh, an hour east of Toronto and, um, it's a bedroom community and a terrible slog, inhuman slog getting into town. Um, and it's just not something I can do for a sustained period of time. Just can't handle it. You know, that's just part of who I am. Well, I, and I can, I can hear her with that because I've, I've lived in satellite communities as well, bread bedroom communities and had to commute into work. I mean, I don't know what it's like down in, in the Bay area or in Seattle, but like people regularly drive for, um, anywhere from an hour to two hours to go to and from work. Yeah. That's, day. that's the yeah, range. For that sure. yeah. yeah. It's typical here yeah. about an hour going in hour and a half. Sometimes that's only 20 miles away around here. That's right. Oh, really? It's not too yeah. far. Yeah. So well, I don't want to get off topic here with the whole, you know. You don't know, worry. We why, have, we have digital tape. Work. We can cut it out. Of okay. course. Yeah. <laughs> All right. For one, learn something about Canada today. Did you? What, you? what did you learn? Well, I had I had no idea what was outside of like the main cities, but apparently there are bedroom communities. Oh, about my God. An hour's worth of time. And it sounds like it's difficult to travel on that. Yeah. It's awful. Nightmare. Well, there's like there's one road, and it gets bottlenecked on, at uh, Salem Road if you're coming in from the from that side. It's yeah. horrible. Yeah, that's mm. it's, right. It's terrible. We, it's ha- we have toll highway. roads up here that we're glad to pay the toll for. Most expensive toll road in North America. Is it really? Wow. That's 407, yeah. Um, okay, anyway. <laughs> going on. No wonder it costs so, so much to build an app. Come yes, on. It's crazy. <laughs> well, the nut of it is, yeah, my, my, my angle is I'm a remote worker. So... Um, the, the problem that I have is that, yeah, I see all this demand for developers. Um, right. I don't know that it's four to one. Are, Tim, are you saying that's in the, that's Bay, in the area? Bay area? From, okay. I was told that about the Bay area. I don't oh. know if Mark can concur with that. Or, you know, any kind of corroborating evidence, but you know, uh, we, we've heard that again and again, that, uh, the companies down there are crying out for developers and they can't sure. find them. Um, and they're I think, all up here in Whitby. Well, <laughs> there's in just Toronto. me, I'm afraid. But the fact is, is that they, they need their developers to be in house. And, um, that's not just in the Bay area. That's in Toronto too. There are companies in Toronto that are hiring developers and, uh, and having trouble finding them like the score, for example, right. uh, you know, one of Canada's most prominent sports apps for iOS. Um, they've just gone through a hiring spree and I think they've finally filled their positions, but it took them several months to find candidates because there just aren't a ton of developers out there. Really? Um, hmm. and I spoke to them. I said, Hey guys, you know, you thinking about hiring remote, any chance of that? And at first they were like, no, no way, no way. We're just not going to do that because we're, you know, we want you in the office. We've got all the pinball and the pinball that doesn't even exist anymore. We've got the foosball tables and the, the drinks and the lunches and the, and the, the barbecue out in the patio. Um, we want you here. We want you staying here. Um, but then as time passed, they started to maybe think about maybe going remote. I know a couple guys there, so I've spoken to them. They're in taco, Tim. Um, yeah, no, I've met them. Yeah. So there was a warming just a, a brief thaw, and then they ended up finding the guys they wanted. But I think the point is companies who are crying out for these developers are, over time, I think, going to have to open themselves to the possibility of hiring remote workers. Right. And, you know, we're all out here. We're waiting. Um, 
we know we we can do the job. Uh, we've shipped apps. We're yes. just waiting for the the call to come, and uh, it hasn't happened yet. And uh, I'm I'm hopeful that one day it will. So I wonder if that's going to end up varying depending on what you're doing. So if I'm right, Aaron, that was for them to hire full time employees, and they were wondering where those workers were, and it wasn't so much as a independent consulting role. Is that correct? Yeah, it was. These were full time roles they were hiring for. In a previous life, I worked for a, a consulting firm that was national in the United States. So it had offices in just about every major market that was there. Uh, and so the teams generally would work, if you were in the Seattle or the San Francisco or the Denver or the New York or Atlanta markets, you were probably working with clients there. Um, whether you worked in that consulting firm's office or you worked on site, I think probably depended on the, the project's needs. But my team in particular was the national team that it was incredibly unlikely for our customers to be anywhere near us. In fact, on the projects I worked with, I think LA was the closest to Seattle. And I had some folks over in uh, North Carolina, right, you know, on the Eastern seaboard. And that one was, you know, it kind of worked out okay. I think there was an initial meeting of some sort over at the customer site. So there was a little bit of business travel, but after that, um, there were regular touch points um, once or twice a week and during the development cycle that really, really helped cement that relationship. So I wonder if that was part of it. Yeah, and Mark, you you've told me that you your work situation is often that you even when you're working full time with something like a startup or whatever, you you are able to work from home from time to time, right? Yeah, a lot of startups when they're very early on uh, will have everyone just work from home instead of getting an office. Uh, I've even been in a couple of cases where everyone was distributed around the country, really. So it, there was there was no one place to to seat everyone. So everyone worked from home and just communicated on, on Skype or, or whatever. How, how do you balance your, uh, your hours and stuff like that? Aaron, do you, do you have like set times when you're coding and not, or? Yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm all business when I'm working. Uh, so during the day I, you know, I, I have a little girl, a daughter goes to school. Um, she's actually started school already. Um, so she goes to school. I come home, I start work. I work until lunchtime. I take a break at lunch. I work for the rest of the afternoon until about five o'clock and then I have dinner and then I, work on my personal projects in the evening and then I go to bed. Yeah, it's it's uh it's really straightforward, you know, there's there's a, a, a you know, a conceit about working from home that you stay in your pajamas and <laughs> just kind of lays around and you end up doing housework and um I'm not like that at all. Um mm-hmm. I, I get dressed like I could just as easily go into an office as I could come to my own office. Yeah, I'm similar similar way here in that because I'm running a business that requires phone and stuff like that, I find from nine to five, I have a lot of interruptions with email. And, and uh, of course, I've got to go check out Twitter from time to time. I, I find that I really can't get a good coding time unless I, you know, specifically focus and turn off all the distractions, you know, and focus in on, on something, whether it's learning a new skill in iOS or or, you know, building or working on an app for a client, you know, so that does take effort. I, I do agree with you there. You know, for me, it's, it's almost kind of a psychological thing when I work from home. Like I have to get dressed. I mean, not dressed up to the nines. I have to at least put on a, a t-shirt and a pair of jeans. But if I'm sitting around in my pajamas, I actually feel tired and unproductive. Mm-hmm. It's really weird. It's like I need to go into like business mode. Yep. Interesting enough, having done both types of, of work, uh, you know, working in an office with a group and, and uh, also in distributed mode, I, I actually can see the advantage of, of being in an office, even though I kind of like the freedom of working from home. Uh, when you're in an office, there are some advantages of, of synergies. 
there's there's just a lot of conversations that happen in the hallway or just you know in the break room or whatever and and you know you have a problem you just go talk to someone and and you know talk it through and, and work it out uh i do find that you can you can achieve a lot by doing that so i think there's a balance i, I, I don't know I, i'm not sure that that we'll ever get to a point where everyone is remote all the time right well i think that i think that's true too because i do know that one of the frustrating things about working remotely is that if I get to a point in, in an app or, or a job and I have to hand off to someone else to, and wait for an answer because if I'm in an office with somebody, they're, everybody's sort of on the clock when they're at the office so that you can right. kind of go and get that answer or you can get that file or you can get a, what do you think about this, you know, this color versus that color decision made on the spot. You know, um, I'm in a position now where, where if I send an email to a busy client, you know, requiring their decision or, or requiring some, you know, some conversation with us. I sometimes have to wait weeks before I get an answer back. And then they're, you know, they're like, Hey, where's the job? Why isn't it finished? You know, whereas it's something that could have been built in, in, you know, maybe a couple of weeks stretches out to a couple of months just because of the fact that, that uh, we don't have that immediate focus point. Right. So. Well, remote work kind of requires a different mindset and it's, it's not just on you, it's on your client as well. Um, you know, if you've read the book uh, Remote by the 37 Signals folks, um, there it's chock full of advice on how to deal with that. And, you know, Mark talking about the synergies you have in the office, uh, I can tell you, I, I feel that keenly um, just in aggregate over my the years that I've spent working from home and not in an office. Um, there's definitely an element of that that happens when you're with other people in the same office space. Um but it's impractical for me to ever get that in a sustained way. So um, there are technologies that can definitely help with that, though. Um, but it requires buy-in from all parties to do it. Yeah, I'm talking about actual synchronous uh, forms of communication. Like what? Uh, like chat or, or what we're oh. doing right now. Um, you know, having, having uh, the ability to instantly talk to anyone on your team because we're all working at the same time or during an agreed uh, period of time, a window. Right. Right. Um, then I can pick up the Skype, if you wish to call it that, uh, and and actually talk to you. Um, or, more commonly, uh, just chat with you. Yeah, or pick up the phone, too. Um, Mark and I often work together on remotely, and, and we'll open up an iChat session, and I'll have the code on my machine, and he'll literally be... Uh, you know, working on my computer from, from San Jose. And we do that quite often. And I find that those two hours or whatever we put together uh, when we can uh, are the most productive times in, in our app building experience. Because we just, mm -hmm. we, we, we kind of, I think that's what, isn't that what they call, uh, what's it, extreme programming or? You're talking about pair programming. Have you guys yeah. ever worked in a pair programming environment? Like, has that ever worked for you or? I have actually. So I have not one where it was um, instituted. It was more of a, a team decision sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't a hundred percent out pair programming. It was more like, you know, at the beginning of a, of a sprint, maybe fleshing out the major structure and the major design, or maybe pairing up on, Hey, this is kind of a tricky problem. Let's, let's hash through this together. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But there was still always the, the desire and the need to sort of, you know, decompress a little bit and, and sit by yourself and, and do some code as, uh, alone as well. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. I, I prefer to, to be left alone to my own devices a lot. And, uh, you know, so often a, a little bit of a tangent, but I think it is actually related is, is sort of the other extreme of working with people in, in different countries. And I don't mean Canada, but I mean, you know, very different time zone uh, countries. 
Right. Uh, you know, people who are 10 hour time difference, you know, where, where they're never awake when you're awake, unless you, unless you really plan ahead and, and make that, uh, I find that to be kind of inefficient. You know, if, if you need to, if you need an answer to something, you have to wait hours to get it. And then if it's not the right answer, then, you know, a day and a half has gone by before you've gotten the answer. Yeah, I actually, I actually built a, uh, an enterprise app for a client in Australia once where mm. you know, I, I built an app and in, in my sort of farming eff- effort in the back of my app, I put, if you're interested in this app and you'd like me to build one, you know, give me a call. And and when somebody did reach out, and so I built this app in Australia, and Australia is, is exactly on the other side of the world from where I am mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. And and that was, it was an interesting thing, even just trying to coordinate when we could actually have the initial Skype call that took a, took a bit of doing and then... And then ultimately, um, I lost control of the app opportunity because, you know, the guy left the company and then the new people didn't know how to, you know, we communicated and yeah, so it was, but it was, it was an interesting, interesting effort. It probably took, you know, again, twice as long to build that app as, as it would normally, right? So mm-hmm. because just because of the communication barrier. Right. Well, speaking of, uh, apps from overseas, um, the original creator of Flappy Birds, which went, you know, viral on Twitter and, and then eventually became like the number one app, people may not know, pulled the app off the app store because of all the pressure and stress and all that kind of stuff. And he was making too much money, apparently. So he's come back with, or he's coming back with an app. Uh, I think he was talking about bringing uh, Flappy Birds back at one point. Um, but now he's come back with a, a new app called Swing Copters. And I think Mark, you were you were uh, wanting to say a few things about that. You uh, well, you uh, you pretty much summed it up uh, <laughs> that it's coming up. Uh, he has a video uh, that's been published uh, that's sort of a preview. Actually, right. the the one thing that struck me about it was how similar it actually is to Flappy Birds. Right. I mean, it, it's kind of the same game rotated ninety degrees with a you know few different graphics. So I, I kind of wonder, will it have the same magic that Flappy Birds did? It, and, and if if so, uh, well, what does that tell us? If so, um, but uh, it, I don't know. Do you guys have an opinion? I read something or I or heard something about the reason why games like Flappy Brook works is because they work on the, the very base brain stem called the amygdala, which is the lizard brain. It's a precognitive kind of thing that, um, you know, all you're doing is tapping the screen. Um, in the case of Swing Copters, it's a bit more sophisticated, Mark. You have to, you have to tap left and right. Okay. Um, yeah. But uh, from what I could see anyway, it's the same sort of thing that like the gambling addiction comes from where, you know, you, it, it, you're so close to winning and for some reason you just feel compelled to keep going and keep going and keep going. Right. And the reason why it originally became viral is because, you know, people started posting on Twitter about how they're, they're losing their lives and they hate this game and they can't stand it. And, and that negative sort of vibe, I mean, and they were being sarcastic, obviously, but that negative vibe made other people say, hey, I got to go check this Slappy Birds app out and see how it goes. Mm-hmm. But, and I, and I, I saw another app the other day called The Line, which is, which is a similar kind of clone to, to Flappy Birds in, in terms of the fact that it's just a simple left and right movement. And it's, you know, it's, it's, you instantly die if you hit the walls as you try and navigate this little ball between a, up a path, right? Or up the line, as it were. I think the story, too, behind uh, Swing Copters is, is the preemptive launch, right? Like, I think we were talking before the show about the fact that um, launching this app with a preview video well in advance of the app launching is almost like trying to build the buzz for it to get the get get some bang when they do launch. Yeah, in general, I think that's a that's a good strategy. 
Yeah, I, I think if yeah, building the buzz definitely definitely helps. Um, now we were talking earlier that maybe he's a little too early, and uh, you know that gives plenty of other people the time to jump in and, and make clones and, and rip them off. It's interesting that the 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 line actually is from the same guys who who uh, cloned. Um, they they're the people who made twenty twenty forty eight. Um, Ketchup is the name of them, and that's a clone of ten twenty four. Which is apparently a clone of threes. You guys were telling me earlier. Mm-hmm. That's right. Design award-winning threes. Yeah. So it was like a cloneception there. So it's interesting that when you guys saw the video, you interpreted it as being a tap left, tap right. You know, I hadn't really even thought about that when I saw that the way that the helicopter was moving. I just assumed it was an accelerometer game. Oh, maybe yeah. And they were yeah. rotating left and right because it seemed rather inaccurate with how they were doing things. Mm. Yeah, and I also kind of wonder how that impacts the game design and, and whether it impacts the virality of this uh, upcoming game because yeah. with flappy bird i mean uh, of course as long as you had you know clear vision if you had a single finger that's all you needed to play the game right right in in, in the other scenario of, of needing two fingers to tap one side or the other or in mine <laughs> we need a fair amount of dexterity to move your wrist back and forth right right yeah. well and actually the, the sorry uh, um what's his dong wing is his name he apparently was building Nokia apps before he got into iOS. And, and if you remember the Nokia apps, they were literally one or two buttons to navigate apps. They weren't very, very sophisticated because they couldn't be because you really only had a few few things to control. But I think, Aaron, you had a, you had a point you wanted to make about this um, stuff? You talk about the, the way that it's uh, got a viral uh, nature to it. Um, I think that there are probably hundreds, if not thousands, of games that are similarly viral, uh, at least in terms of their, their play characteristics. Um, I, I just think it's, it's random luck that, that yeah. Flappy Bird was successful in the first place. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, for sure. Yeah. And if we're, if we're all agreed to that, then surely we can all agree that Swing Copters is going to do nothing as well. That those of us who follow the, the iOS gaming industry, such as it is, um, will her- have heard of it and try it out, but it will gain none of the success that its predecessor had. I don't know. I, I think there's a little bit of a been there, done that vibe mm-hmm. to it from Flappy Words. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. But in, but in terms of things getting viral or, or becoming successful, the other day I stumbled across an app on the App Store that looked like an old school typewriter. And, you know, I'm from the old school. So seeing it, seeing a, a sort of a typewriter an analogy, it's kind of a cute concept, you know, and I looked at this thing and I thought, oh, it's got like a little rolly wheel and it probably, you have to sw- swipe the thing to make it advance the roll the paper up so you can type some more on it or something like that, which would be, would be fun for about 10 minutes. And then it, to my surprise, turned out that it's actually put out there by Tom Hanks, the Academy Award winning actor, obviously got the the traction he got on the app store because of who he was right all of a sudden people are like hey tom hanks did this thing and and like our friend kim kardashian his name carries a lot of weight and sort of you know is able to put out an app that that really isn't that sophisticated do do we know whether he was actually involved in the design and the and the conception of the app or or did a company build it and just have a really good marketing move in, in getting him on board do we know yeah i don't know I, i'm just gonna i saw an article on that the other day i'm gonna look at that and uh, while aaron tells us about his feelings about it <laughs> <laughs> my feelings are unpublishable <laughs> this is the different this is a different app store this this app store that we're talking about right now has nothing to do with us or our listeners so shame on you for even paying attention to it having said that i totally downloaded it 
Um, <laughs> and and the thing is, is that it's it's nice, you know. Oh, really? um, oh sure. Have you not tried it? I no, thought you were all old school, but, but Tim. I, I just noticed that that I, I just downloaded. I just went to the first hit on Google, and it's actually from on the CBC News website. So you and I are, are honor bound as Canadian taxpayers to read this article. Uh, yes, I of course do follow everything that CBC does. Um, I have this thing. Uh, it's right here, and um, it's actually if if you want a typewriter on your iPad, this thing works great. Um, right. It's not just some kind of gimmick. Um, it's a fully functional document with a lot of very interesting interactions with the paper in the typewriter. You can play the, the, the paper up and down in the line feeder. You can see the edges of the document that you're typing with. Can you use carbon paper in it? No. I miss carbon paper. <laughs> but it's got some uh, pretty cool little interactions. And here, you can listen to it. Can you hear that? Yeah, yeah, we can sort of hear that. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sounds pretty authentic. <laughs> yeah, it really does. And here's the other thing. It's it's just riddled with in-app purchases. Oh, really? So, oh, there oh, my you go. God. Every, every control that you look at um, outside of the actual interface for managing your documents um, is to purchase different typewriters. Right, yeah, I saw that too, yeah. Um, I'm surprised. I, I thought Tom Hanks had money. Yeah, that's the thing that always gets me. It's like, why are you doing this exactly? Because, right. um, yeah, uh, you you can give Tom Hanks all kinds of money. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm just reading here online to answer your question from earlier, Mark. It, it's, mm-hmm. uh, apparently he did it in partnership with a creative agency called HitSense. And, uh, yeah, he claims that he wanted to have, you know, the sensation of using an old manual typewriter. And I do know that, you know, because my wife and I go to flea markets and stuff like that. Retro typewriters are really popular with young folks these days, apparently. Like, people like to get them and play around with the whole concept of, of what we used to do for actual work and get paid, you know? Um, but the, I think it's more, there's another side of the story. Who was telling me about the App Store conversation with Twitter? That was me. Again, this is the other App Store. So uh, when, when this app launched, um, I follow the official App Store Twitter account. Okay. And they had an, a conversation with Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks' official Twitter account that lasted at probably close to an hour mm. of, and it was just, you know, celebrity jibber jabber that I glazed right over that, <laughs> you know how it is, you know how it is, come on. Um, but it was a sustained marketing push that lasted for almost a good solid hour. Really? Wow. Felt like wow. it anyway. Um, wow. That, you know, this is, some, this is an app that clearly doesn't need any help in promoting. So of course that's what the app store promotes. Um, and here we are. Uh, there's there's nobody who doesn't know about this app now. Really? Hmm. Uh, I mean, you look at the App Store, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll look this up right now. The App Store has 2.8 million followers on Twitter. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so That's quite the reach. That is hmm. a little bit of reach. And uh, that's, uh, that's going to help promote this app and no doubt. all of its IAPs. I wonder what the app store thinks about the uh, swing copters app. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Aaron, I'm curious about you. You mentioned a couple of times now that this is a different app store than the app store that I'm used to using. Are you talking about the difference between the Canadian app store and the American app store? Or what are you talking about? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I'm talking about the app store that our apps inhabit and is, the ones. Is, yeah. yeah. So, which... so, sorry, expound on that for me, please. Fine. <laughs> um, so you go to the App Store app. 
Yeah. And uh, I, f- I feel this hardly needs to be said, but every app that you see in the App Store app is one App Store. It's the one that has featured apps. Right. Um, it's got editor's choices. Um, and that's where uh, the, the people who are already popular remain popular. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Popular. Yeah, well, it's, um, it's, a totally, it's totally a curated uh, environment, and I, and I actually know some of the Canadian curators as well. So, uh, Well, let me have a chat with them. Uh, so, okay. And here, I'm looking at the featured list, and there's Hank's writer, uh, yeah. top front and center. And... Right. Um, it's it's a it's an infrastructure that that um, perpetuates the successful um, and ignores the rest. Right. Um, and so that's that's the one app store, and the other app store is the one that, frankly, that we live in, um, who are trying to be indie developers, where we can't regard the app store as a marketing mechanism at all. No, that's true. It's a distribution mechanism. True. Right. Um, and I think you know we've t- spoken about this before. But indie developers who conflate the the two faces of the app store are in for a world of hurt um, because you cannot count on this app, the app store app, uh, to market your app. You have to you have to have your own uh, means of, of reaching the market. Well, that, well, that's totally true. And I can talk about my own experience with with both the real app store and, and this supposed editorially constructed app store, um, having been having had successes in both. Right. Getting uh, Apple Canada in this case's attention um, is it takes quite a bit of effort, and, and we went through that. We, we you know we, we explained them what our apps were, and and and, and they they promoted them and put them up there. But unfortunately, being featured on the Canadian App Store is nothing like being featured on the American App Store. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's a laughable different difference, right? And, but that said, some apps get put into the categories that feed the, the clients. And I, I do believe there is a certain amount of mechanism behind the, um, whether you get featured or not also has to do with a lot, a lot with your, your content and your downloads, right? So, cause we have a couple of apps that are featured on the, on the American app store that are based on, you know, not, we, we've never had a conversation with Apple USA about this. Um, in fact, they won't even take our calls. <laughs> That's a joke they put us up on the app store because the, the, the subject matter is compelling to the audience that we're, we're catering to. But, you know, you, but that said, I mean, I've never ever been able to get any sort of success out of, or seen any kind of success out of being on the app store. And I think Mark and I, we talked about this a couple of podcasts ago, about the fact that we've both yeah. been successful and it's not really, really mattered all that much, but. Well, I, I don't hundred percent agree. I sort of agree. Uh, if you can get onto the real front page of the app store, oh yeah, for sure, that's something. 
yeah. if you get onto new and noteworthy on a category page, that's not so great. That's that doesn't do that much for you. Well, because and, and the thing it is, yeah, people, it, it's difficult to find apps. I mean, that's that's. I think we've had this conversation. We when we said the app store was broken, for those of you who didn't figure that out, that's what we meant was the fact that you can't get any kind of traction there at all. But I think it's really interesting that that this app store Twitter account was able to get in a conversation with Tom Hanks. And, and I mean, it's good for Apple too, in a certain extent, because, you know, they're able to use the social networking to get that. But obviously, you know, having a conversation with the app store account, you know, is obviously going to help any, anybody if they get promoted by them, because it's, it's almost like an instant success. Well, don't you think that was orchestrated? Oh, I, I assume it was. Yeah, 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 for, yeah, sure, yeah. for sure. For yeah. sure. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I do work in, in the entertainment industries from time to time. And, and I can tell you, you know, when sometimes I sometimes stuff that looks like it's really interesting is, is actually just TV magic or radio magic, you know, so um, and it's it's planned well in advance when you see it. Well, why don't we ch- change uh, change gears here a bit and, and talk a bit more about what uh, we're here for. Um, and that is, you know, technologies and, and as well as building businesses for, for app developers, but also on some technology stuff. And Aaron, you were having some experiences over the last couple of weeks with size classes, I believe, right? On the new iOS 8? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm, I'm working on a new app for myself uh, to sort of uh, reflect back on what we said about how single developers can't make apps. Well, we'll see if that's true or not. Okay. Um, <laughs> so my app is my own and uh, I'm using all the new iOS 8 technologies, including size classes, um, because uh, as Apple would like us to do, I'm building simultaneously for iPhone and iPad. Um, And with size classes uh, inside of Xcode uh, interface builder, you can sort of plot a single interface and then customize it as needed for both the iPhone and the iPad. Right, so you're so, you're able to split up the experience. Like, are you doing like a master detail kind of app, or? Uh, no, it's not. Um, okay. Yeah, but, it's... but you're able to to have a different layout experience based on using the compact size class for iPhone and the expanded size class for iPad. Right, um, right. and using different uh, layouts even for portrait and landscape on an iPhone, for example. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. My my experience was that I was I was kind of going through the exercise of of building my UI for this app, and it kind of occurred to me that while I was doing this, that Apple with their size classes, you know, and the way that the that interface builder works in implementing uh, your UI in size classes, mm-hmm. um, sort of tends to preclude the ability to to do something, let's say, radically different, depending on whether you're on the iPhone or the iPad. Now. Since since I've written this blog post, I've I've actually gone back and watched the WWDC videos, and I can see that with uh, a great amount of finagling, you could work around this, but then you would be well outside the bounds of Interface Builder and its management of the size classes. Right. Uh, you'd be back pretty much into code at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so think of an example like um, I'm not going to give you an example of a particular app, but you have an iPhone app that presents a certain amount of information and you might uh, drill down into a detail view, for example. Okay. Um, on an iPad, um, you might actually have a completely different interface where everything is on one screen. And I'm only speaking speculatively here because um, what I'm saying is that 
Apple's notion of employing size classes is that your iPhone and your iPad interfaces will be largely similar, that one will simply be a blown up version of the other. But they did, but they ask us not to do that, though, when we're building iPad apps. That doesn't sound like the same Apple that I work for. Oh, you work for Apple. <laughs> <laughs> so what I, what I mean by that, and I don't, I don't want to be dismissive by saying blown up, okay? No, no, yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, what I what I just mean is that um, you know has largely the same elements on the screen, and that is the um, optimal path right. that that this technology is laid in front of us. Whereas there are apps and some of the best iPad apps that have a very unique take on um, the same problem set that the iPhone app is tackling but it can even come at it from an entirely different viewpoint. Right, yeah. So there are apps that are iPad only, mm-hmm. right, that are so different from the iPad ver- iPhone version, rather, that they aren't even chipped in the same binary. Yeah, we, um, we, we've done that with, with some of our apps. We, some of our apps are universal, but a lot of our earlier apps in, in, in the early days, first of all, were built a lot in code. Like, for, I don't think we even used XIBs. Um, but the experience of content that we were delivering in, on the iPhone was completely different than what we were, we were delivering on, on the iPad. Right. Like we treated um, them like completely different environments. Altogether. Of course. And I think there's a school of thought at least, and this is a school of thought that I subscribe to, that the iPad is a sufficiently different device yeah. that it, it benefits the most when the software written for it targets that device specifically. Oh, I totally agree with you with that, that statement. And further, that there are insufficient examples of such software on the iPad, okay, yeah. um, that, that the iPad is crying out for great iPad class software. Now, if I can continue that thought a little further, um, what I think is happening here is Apple is kind of, I believe, veering away from that path of, of focusing on the iPad as sort of a next generation computing platform. And trying to make it more iPhone-like, because I think something I don't think we've really talked about on this show, but I think size classes is pointing very strongly towards um, the notion of a split-screen uh, multiple app scenario on the iPad. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's terribly controversial, mm-hmm. um, and I think you know most people can see how that would work because if your app uses size classes and can um, function properly in a compact uh, size on an iPad screen, then it's built already to take up, say, a third of the screen while a different app takes up three quarters or Mm -hmm. the other two thirds. (laughs) That's my math at 11 o'clock at night. So I think that's what Apple's focused on. And I I don't know when we're going to actually see that. But to me, that's what it feels like the purpose of size classes is rather than enabling distinct iPad only experiences. And right. that's kind of what worries me. It's interesting. I, I had a different take on it. Um, my thought was that the reason they did this was because for, well, we know that the multiple screen sizes are coming and, and there'll be more in the future. Right. Uh, and, and we know that there was, there was a lot of uproar when the iPhone five came out and the four inch screen, and there wasn't really even a good mechanism to tell on the iPhone, whether you had, had a three and a half inch screen or a four inch screen inside the app. So, uh, I, I, my impression was that this was, was Apple actually trying to be proactive 
uh, going way back. You know, this, this probably went back, you know, at least a year that they've been planning this, if not longer. Uh, looking at the at the fragmenting market that they that they were facing, inter fragmenting in terms of devices, and looking at the the at least the, the press uh, uh, and the perception of a lot of problems on the Android side with, with multiple screen sizes and trying to come up with the best way that they could to, to do something sort of before it happens uh, to, to stave that off. Uh, and I wonder if, if what you're saying, Aaron, is, is just sort of an unintended consequence of, of that. I think that auto layout is the answer to uh, changing device screen sizes. You know, like if, yeah. if an iPhone gets slightly larger, you know, by about 10 to 20 percent, then auto layout can handle that. Right. Right. But True. I think what we're talking about is, is going even beyond that to a situation where a single screen can host multiple apps or multiple screens inside of it. Yeah. Um, and that's where it feels like size classes is really heading to. Well, I, I kind of I have two things, two, two sort of tacks to talk about. One is. Um, Having having studied Android uh, const- app construction, um, uh, one of the things I saw at 360i Dev last year was a presentation by a former Android uh, developer, forgotten her name, but I'll put it in the show notes, who exp- did a did a talk on uh, Android development for iOS developers, and she basically um, brought made it very clear that. When you build an Android app, you build from the center of the screen out. And the reason they do that, I think, is because of all the fragmentation in their devices and and sizes. Because even beyond what Apple has in terms of the different size screens, because they're going to so many different manufacturers, it's like Windows used to be on when it was in its heyday. You didn't know what what hardware you're going to run on, so they kind of had to dumb it down to the lowest common denominator. But the other thing that the, the other thing that I kind of sort of see in terms of why Apple is doing this is because you know as a, as a relatively new developer uh, coming into this from from a completely different environment, um, in in that I wasn't really a full time software developer when I started doing this, they got to make it easier for apps to be built, right? In order in order to succeed in the in the larger world, because you know for a lot of different reasons we talked about at the top of the show, cost of building apps, et cetera, et cetera. I've always sort of joked that, you know, Adobe's going to come out with iPhone 1, 1.0, that, you know, the, the app you can download in the retail box and, and pop out your first iOS app in, in no time. But it seems to me that, that the whole move towards storyboards initially and then auto layout and now size classes is to kind of take the heavy lifting out of building an app. Our first, our first bunch of apps were all literally all code. We, you know, we worked with a developer out of, out of uh, Calgary who basically started out our app by building view controllers programmatically, and everything we did in our apps were, was programmatic, right? Um, and we, you know, the we would get art from the from the client, like done in Photoshop and Illustrator, but it would the everything there was wasn't a need to be found in our apps, and we were like that for about you know a couple of years, and. Um, you know, I think even when Mark and I first started working together, neither one of us were really using storyboards either, were we, Mark? Uh, no, you were I using used, nibs when you first. Yeah, I always used interface builder, but yeah, I, I didn't jump on the storyboard uh, train for probably a year or so after they were released. released. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I had a customer come to my house last year for for consulting on building an app for him, and he literally had gone into storyboard and he had basically put all the artwork in in um, right into in, into interface builder, and he built a really complicated web of of storyboards with buttons and, and using the, you know, the exit and entry kind of stuff. 
not one line of code and he had built an yeah. entire app that you could drill down into information and jump back to home and whatever he'd built this really complicated app that he could have put on the app store that didn't have a line of objective c in it hmm. yeah, other than you know he, the, he kind of built a website in an app but he essentially of, right? did yeah. He, yeah. he used the whole storyboard <laughs> tools and all that kind of stuff to build a little iphone app that did exactly I mean, what could i do for him you're, you're done ship it you know yeah <laughs> So, Aaron, one interesting thing about, about what you were just saying is if you take it another step forward, maybe even the next logical progression is, you know, it's, it's no secret that iOS and, and macOS 10 are getting more and more similar. So is this all gearing up towards the day when everything will run on everything? We'll be able to run an iOS app on, on a Mac with, you know, no extra work because it'll all be the same. And and this this concept of you know, having the, the multiple apps on screen at that time that you're talking about uh, would really lend itself to that pretty well. Mm-hmm. That would make a very different desktop style operating system for we sure. You call it Metro. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't see it happening though. Um, no. Honestly. Yeah. I don't, you know, I think Apple's made pretty clear that they're not interested in merging the operating systems that they see each OS as the truest expression right. of the hardware it runs on. Right, and I I agree with that. I don't I don't think you can make uh, my MacBook Pro run iOS and have it be um, useful or better than what the Mac OS provides. Right, and, and I think mm-hmm. I, I totally I agree with you on the, on the whole point of, of 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 building an app that targets the platform. I mean, if you're building a Mac OS OS X app, you're obviously building for a different set of tools. You got to deal with mouse and keyboard, and and you have a whole bunch of other things to to play with. Like in fact. I'm drawing a blank on it, but come back to me in a minute. But on the plus side, you can just cut this all out, especially that OS X part. What? Never say OS X in a podcast. OS X, get why? Rid of that. Because it's wrong. It's OS 10. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Fine. Okay. OS 10. All right. Yeah, well, what, people, what are we going to call it when it's when it goes to 11? <laughs> it'll call OS 10 11 or whatever, uh, but don't call it OS X. OS 10. Okay. All right. Uh, what was my point again? Um, designing for the platform. Oh, yes. Um, thank you, Mark. I totally agree with the, the whole concept of designing apps for specific platforms. Like, I think that, you know, like if you have a magazine type app and you have a lot of content and you want people to flip through it, like using the whole analogy of, of the magazine, um, it, you, you, you know, you have to sort of specifically think about the fact that you're building for iPad. If you're building for Mac OS X, you know, you've got the whole database core data stuff. You can build a, a core data app without even lifting a line of code on, on OS 10. Did I say OS X before? You did. You did. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, I'm into OS 10. Please don't yell at me. Um, but yeah. And, and you, you build an app for the iPhone, like, like Tom Hanks, little typewriter app is going to be useless on an iPhone. You have to build an app that takes advantage of the environment that you're building for. So if it's an iPad and you've got the bigger screen, then you build an app that does that. Like, you know, the Alice in Wonderland book where you, you tip the, the iPad around and, and the pieces fall in and out. It doesn't work on a smaller screen. So I think there's some potentially interesting implications for Apple, um, you know, if size classes turns out to really be the, you know, this new catalyst for, for a way that apps are, are being built uh, across uh, multiple devices. And I think in the short term, there's probably a bigger impact on independent developers. So going back to the Apple side of the house, one of the biggest criticisms for Android is the fact that uh, since Android was from day one designed to handle multiple screen sizes and, and whatnot, 
it's it's actually had this tooling for quite some time to do something roughly similar to what size classes offers. But the downside to that is it's a very common complaint on the Android side that, you know, yes, there are apps that run on Android tablets, but there's no true tablet apps. Mm -hmm. There's nothing really optimized because there's there's not, not a really, lot of incentive yeah. Yeah, to go do that. that. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Um, in contrast with the iOS side where it's you know common enough to have a radically different experience on the iPad versus the iPhone. Um, and, and as part of that, the business aspect is that it's you know possible to actually sell the same branded app twice, uh, an iPhone version and its radically different iPad counterpart. So I kind of wonder for indie devs, well, what happens if you know, it, the kind of the expectation as well, it's roughly the same experience. One is bigger, one smaller. I'm not going to pay you more for the iPad app and I may not even pay you twice for the iPad app. Why don't you just make it universal? That's what I want as a consumer, right? Right. I could see that happening. And then what does that mean? You know, if the incentive for independent developers as well, don't make a radically different iPad app, just use size classes and everything magically works its way. What does that mean for Apple's platform? How does iOS differentiate itself from Android? Right? It loses some of its differentiation in this case. And that's exactly why I was concerned about this. Right there. Mm -hmm. um, because I think Apple's answer is, yeah, we want you, we definitely want you to make a universal app. By definition, they have to be very similar because they're not going to be separate development efforts. It's going to be one development effort. And yeah, what does that mean for the future of the iPad? Um, that it, it makes me anxious. Yeah, I still have a lot of faith in the fact that there are genuine developers out there who will, I mean, I'm, to be honest with you, I'm a little confused about the whole size class thing. I, do, I, I built an app last week that, you know, as, as I was working through some stuff in Swift that, you know, when, when I opened up the app in the template, it, it built, you know, give me a, you know, the, the size class style storyboard with the big square uh, views. Right. And, and I left mm -hmm. it and, and, and I kept working with it, but um, I, 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 in terms of getting my head around what I would build with this kind of, with this kind of technology, I'm sure somebody will take great advantage of it, but um, there's a lot to be said for uh, getting a compelling experience that works on the iPhone and maybe a completely different experience, even if it's the same app in a universal environment on the iPad. I mean, um, we've built apps in the past, even Mark and I built them together where we had to, you know, we come up with ways of, of resizing and swapping images in and out based on whether it was on the iPhone or the iPad in a universal app, and then even tweaking it so that when you rotated the iPad, you got a different, you loaded up a different image and things scaled properly, you know, whether buttons were placed or whatever. And because we were working with an artist who was wise enough to realize that she had a different um, canvas to play with on the iPad, right? She could do more with the design rather than just blowing up the iPhone app, right? And there are features in there to handle that. You can you can go in and and specifically move things around uh, for just like the you know the the large the, the normal size class whatever they call it uh, versus the compact. So so a lot of the stuff that we had to do somewhat manually back back in the day uh, gets done for you. So in that sense, there are some nice things to it. One thing one thing that I often do is is have a, a background uh, image that that is. You know, if that thing gets stretched, then it, it looks pretty crappy. So I'm not sure how that's going to get handled going forward. Well, I think uh, yeah, to, to your point there, like, though, I think you can you can do a make a size class specifically for you could have uh, your common uh, code in, in the main any any class or right. any any type. And then if you went to the compact one, you could swap in uh, an image. As far as I understand, you could put in the iPhone sized image. And when you went to the wide format, you could choose the iPad one even so you could have 
you have three different sort of paradigms to work in, and maybe four if you consider rotating the iPad, as I said earlier. Um, so you have, you know, you have your, your co code that's common to both apps or both views, and then you have the stuff that's specific to one layout or the other, right? Isn't that the whole idea behind size classes and traits? And Yes, that's exactly yeah. it. Yeah. And it, you can even uh, do different things in code if you want, because a trait collection is a class that you can interrogate and find out um, which traits that make up the collection you're dealing with in any particular case. You know, you go into uh, we'll layout subviews and you can make changes based on what the current truth is of the device that you're operating on. None of this is my point. <laughs> um, it's, it's, uh, to, to Mark's point, it's excellent to work with. Um, it, uh, it makes developing a universal app super sweet and I'm having a blast with it right now. Um, so, um, that's not my criticism. Uh, it's, it's working well. My criticism is that there's, this is going to perpetuate the sameness between iPhone and iPad apps. And, and that's what your blog post, the limitations of iOS eight classes is sort of, that's the summary of it. Basically. Okay. That's the lead. Sorry. That's the, the TLDR. Sorry, the TLDR. Yeah. Too long. Didn't read. You got the, okay. yeah. Uh, yeah. So essentially, um, you know, my, one of my, uh, bugbears is that, uh, the iPad is a unique and futuristic device that we are not taking sufficient advantage of. And by we, I mean all developers. And I think size classes perpetuates, the sameness of interface between iPhone and iPad uh, to the iPad's detriment. Um, because as we all know, the iPhone is the first class citizen in the mobile device world. By lumping in the iPad with that, I think we're going to be losing something. Right. right. Okay. Well, um, I think we're probably getting close to the time we have allotted for today's show. So let's go around the circle and see if there's any apps that are, are uh, piquing your interest or if there's any technologies that you're interested in or excited about. Um, do you have anything to contribute there, Aaron? I do. Oh, good. Um, yeah. Don't sound too surprised. Well, last week it was like, <laughs> well, no, I don't. Sorry. Well, yo, I was just working on <laughs> Hang my head, so shame, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Um, uh, there was a, a, a couple weeks ago, there was a sale that Apple held. I'd love to know the details of this one, actually. They held a sale for productivity apps. Do you remember that? So no. they had, oh no, okay. Well, they had a whole bunch of apps like Fantastical, I think. and um, Oh yeah, I do. Like a bundle kind of thing. They, well, no, no, not a bundle, just oh. like a feature. So like you'd go to the app store and you'd see like all these That's apps. the other app store we're talking about, right? Yeah, exactly, not ours. Yeah. Um, all these apps that were for sale. Well, um, there was this great productivity app that I saw and I, I just browsed through the list, you know, to see what they were featuring. And I found this app called Graphio. That's G-R-A-F-I-O. And it is an app that you use to make uh, charts and flow charts and spread, uh, not spreadsheets, uh, diagrams. And um, it has tons of templates. And um, I've been playing with it, and it has just marvelous interactions. It's been very well done. Hmm. Um, and so if you have any need to sort of uh, create uh, flow charts or... Um, you know those uh, UML yeah. type of yeah. things where you're mm -hmm. making spreadsheets? Yeah. Uh, spreadsheets. Why am I saying spreadsheets? <laughs> Database structures, schemas, you know? Oh, schemas, yeah. <laughs> Schema, schemai. And if you want to do that sort of thing, um, Graphio has uh, a huge library of different uh, templates that you can use. Sort of similar to, if you're similar, um, familiar rather with Omnigraph. Yeah, I was going to say Omnigraph. Mm -hmm. I use Omnigraph a lot. Yeah, well, um, this, this one... Uh, 
I, I actually don't use OmniGraffle on the iPad. Uh, I don't have that app. Why um, is it because it's expensive on the iPad? Well, you know, it's something I don't use very often, and so I'm, I'm right. not going to uh, to jump on that kind of cost. And I know there are people that use it extensively. I'm not one of those people. Mm -hmm. uh, for them, it's great. But for, I think, uh, $3 or something on the line of $3, wow. uh, this it was on sale. Um, this was an easy thing to try, and uh, I am delighted with it. Uh, G-R-A-F-I-O. Does it, uh, does it have a, a Mac uh, version? or No, I don't believe so. Yeah. Huh. So Aaron, I think if I may interject here, maybe the reason you keep thinking of spreadsheets is I think everybody knows that Microsoft Excel spreadsheets are like the data structure of choice in the entire world. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's true. Uh, that's true. Now, excuse me. <laughs> First thing I thought of when you said the name Graphio was, was Visio, another Microsoft product that oh, does of course, kind of a similar yeah. thing. Right. Bet you that's exactly where they got the name from. Yeah. Jaime, do you have anything uh, to add? I do have a, an app pick of the week in this case. It's Camoji. Oh, uh, it's a portmanteau of camera and emoji. Okay. And the idea is it's a it's a really simple app where uh, I think it's a single screen experience. I've only used it a handful of times, but it was it was actually kind of compelling to begin with. If you're the kind of person who likes to make uh, gifts in a jiffy, so you pretty much just hold down on the screen, and it takes up to I think ten to fifteen seconds worth of video and turns that into a, an animated GIF. And it's pretty easy to share. You can add you know, small annotations and whatnot. It's actually kind of fun using. And there's a surprising number of, um, of uh, pre-installed apps that support it. Like, you know, the email client, the uh, iMessage client on iOS, they all natively support that. Really? Uh, disappointingly, I did find that if your app that you're using to share these doesn't natively support animated GIFs, it's, uh, it's not going to be all that nice and happy. It looks like just a static image, unfortunately, and, which I ran across when uh, communicating with one of my friends. Uh, but fortunately, you can actually share a link to that file. So they actually host them up uh, on the web somewhere. Oh, really? Not really sure on the security implications of that, but they, they are out there hmm. if, you, if you care to share. So it's kind of like a Vine sort of idea. You can put together a quick little giffy thing, jiffy thing, gif, jif thing. GIFs in a Jiffy. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was glad thing. you didn't say GIFs in a Giffy, so. <laughs> the, the, the GIFs of GIFs? Insert groan here. Sorry, it had to be said. <laughs> I'm sorry. But, you know, I I kind of wonder, uh, kind of as an aside here, if this is like the new hot thing to do. Um, there's several apps that are out there that do something very similar to this. And uh, as kind of an aside, I actually was pulled in for technical consultation um, from a UX designer to kind of help them understand, you know, they were trying to get together an app and a project and uh, trying to recruit me at the time, but it, it really wasn't a good timing for me to have a side project. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, how about Mark? Have you got anything to add in here? Uh, well, I don't have a, a, an app recommendation, but can I do kind of a shameless plug? Sure. Of course you can. Okay. Uh, my, here. Yeah. My app scales and modes for iPad is currently mm -hmm. listed in the iPad store under education apps for middle school. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, you know, and, and it's, it's not just for middle school. It's for anyone who's interested in, in music theory and learning about uh, scales, musical scales and, and modes and things like that. It's an educational app. Well, I have to interject here, if I can, for a second, that, that um, I was uh, trying to find – I'm a guitar player, and I've been playing for many, many years, but I'm self-taught. So there are some gaps in my, in my understanding of music and music theory, and it, it – in every guitarist's life, it gets to a point where they need to figure out where the notes are actually on the, on the um, uh, 
on the the fingerboard and it's beyond you know just playing chords and, and banging out or some sort of rhythm but i was talking to uh, uh one of my clients who's a music teacher he teaches at the royal conservatory here in toronto and I, I went to, hit, to have a conversation with him and it just came around to, we were talking about Mark's app, Scales and Modes. And I showed him the app and he was really impressed with it. And he thought it would be a great app to have uh, for his students to basically do exactly that, learn the scales and modes in different, because you cover off all the different types of um, scales like Mixlodeon and Pythagorean. Yeah, it's, and, it, it takes all of the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the three most important scales, the major and, and a couple of different minor scales. And then, uh, constructs all the different modes based on those, which are modes are basically a scale that starts on a, a different root note than the than the main root note of the scale. So, hmm. and those have fancy names like Dorian and Mixolydian and uh, jazz minor and uh, harmonic minor scales, things like that. It's great that 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 um, the other app store is is promoting this thing under um, under uh, school uh, apps for middle schools, right? Yeah. Well, speaking of music and speaking of shameless plugs, um, my first article with RayWenderlich.com uh, blog launched today, and it happens to be about music, about making music for uh, iOS developers or anybody who wants to write a game. And the idea is I discovered this. I've been downloading, as I said before, lots of Korg apps. I'm a big fan of their stuff, and I, I don't mind paying for the better quality stuff. And I've, I've downloaded just about every app that makes a noise on on the iPad and the iPhones over the years. And this was the first app that I could take as not really super strong in theory, but understanding how music is put together, I could actually take and make a theme for a game. In fact, my game, Geese Squad, has in the latest version written, rewritten for iOS 7 in the iPhone 5 screen, um, I, I was able to put in my own music track. So, so I wrote a tutorial on how to um, use Korg Gadget to build a song uh, really simply for for that. And Ray liked the idea, and now I'm on the Ray Wonderlick team, and I hope to be writing more stuff for them in the future. Congratulations. Thank you very much. So, Aaron, where can people find you? I'm on the web at aaron.vay.ca is my blog, and I publish a weekly magazine, bigfruitmag.net every Friday. And you can reach me on Twitter at Aaron Vay, A-A-R-O-N, V as in Victor, E-G-H. And Jaime, where can people find you? I have my own blog at devwithahair.com, also available on Twitter at devwithahair, and still holding out hope on app.net <laughs> at devwithahair as well. Okay. And Mark, where can people find you? Uh, as I said, apps for middle schools, uh, that's a good place to start, but otherwise, www.smapsoft.com <laughs> uh, <laughs> or markr at smapsoft.com. And I am, of course, I'm Tim Mitra here in Toronto, Ontario, which I didn't say at the beginning, and I am T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on Twitter. I host my blog on it-guy.com, itguy.com, and that's where you'll find this podcast if you've found it through one of our tweets, hopefully, and I'm now a tutorial writer on raywonderlick.com so we'll see you guys hopefully next week and we'll be down at, at in denver for 360i dev and hopefully we'll be uh enjoying a night of meat and uh we'll go from there goodbye good night good night Tom.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.